Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books, handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one, wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Today, I'm joined by two poets who, in their latest works, embark upon extraordinary formal experiments through which, perhaps somewhat paradoxically, they succeed in delivering two of the most accessible, moving and profound collections, if that's the word for these remarkable books, that I've read this year. Richard Barnett's Wherever We Are When We Come to the End is an imagining of the experience of the young Ludwig Wittgenstein in the First World War, recounted in the same austere and succinct statements as the philosophers Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus the initial notes for which were taken during the conflict. The result is an affecting examination of love, duty and violence that had such a strong impact on me that it sent me back to investigate Wittgenstein's writings with fresh eyes. Sarah Bakewell called Wherever We Are When We Come to the End ingenious, devastating and filled with emotional riches. Luke Kennard's notes on the sonnets revisit Shakespeare's poetry in a chain of prose poems set in a British house party. The party is a contradictory beast, at once crushingly dull yet flecked with the absurd, at once sprawling yet intensely claustrophobic. Kennard's poems embody these contradictions too. They somehow manage to be superficial yet profound, charmingly insolent yet glacially serious, knowingly pretentious yet deeply insecure and self-critical, and they take in almost every subject under the stars. Notes on the Sonnets was a Poetry Book Society recommendation and recently won the Forward Prize for Best Collection 2021. Richard, Luke, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you. Good to be Thanks, here. Um, Richard, Beginning with you, um, ever since Ludwig Wittgenstein died more than, what, seven, eight, seven decades ago now, uh, he seems to have provided an enormous inspiration to artists, uh, particularly writers, but, uh, but other artists too, sort of across the board. I'm just curious to begin, would you be able to reflect a little bit on what it was about the man or his work that appeals so much to, to artists? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I can I can tell a sort of general story here, and I can tell my own specific story. The, mm-hmm. the, the general story is very well told in Marjorie Perloff's wonderful book Wittgenstein's Ladder, which was really the first book to sort of think about the the, the, the Tractatus and his other writings from a kind of aesthetic perspective, kind of recasting them as, uh, as 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 forms of literature, especially forms of modernist literature. And I I think part of the appeal is that it 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 does this is this is where as it were the, the general story intersects with my own personal story. That I I think if you come to the Tractatus without preconceived Exceptions, as, I, as I did when I was a late teenager, this, this whole book mm-hmm. goes back to a, a completely chance encounter in the school library when I was about 17. 
if you just pick up this book and read it, it, it there's something that, that, that as I as I said in an interview recently, it's, it kind of smells like a poem. Obviously, mm. it isn't. I had, a, I had an argument with the British Wittgenstein Society recently about you know is it literally a poem or not? And of course, no, it's literally a work of philosophy. But it, it, it feels like a poem. It's concerned with all of the things that modernism was concerned about. It's concerned with language and the limits of language. It's crucially concerned with what kind of lies beyond those limits, what lies beyond speech and beyond death. Um, it's concerned, rather brilliantly, it's concerned with nonsense. Nonsense is a kind of key term in the early Wittgenstein's um, philosophy. And structurally as well, that, that was the thing that really grabbed him more. So if, if, if listeners to this haven't seen the book before, quickly Google Tractatus Logico Philosophicus and have a look at how it looks on the page. It's this extraordinary mm. book. I don't really think there's anything else like it in, not only in philosophy, but really in literature. It consists of a series of numbered propositions. And it's, as you might expect, starts with number one. But the second proposition is 1.1, which is the first comment on proposition one. 1.2 is the second comment on proposition one. 1.21 is the first comment on the second sub-comment and, <laughs> and so on and so on. It, it's a lot harder to discuss and to explain than it is actually to just see it on the page. And even at 17, I, I looked at this and I thought, well, this is, this, is a, this, is a, this is a poetic structure. You can use this, Wittgenstein does, to create, as it were, sort of uh, stanzas and clauses and sections you can use it to kind of create this kind of cycling structure of allusions that run right through the book. So I, I think in, in lots of ways, Wittgenstein said towards the end of his life that, 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 that philosophy should be written in a, in a poetic style, in a poetic method. And I think that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why it's, it's so appealing. It, it has, as Marjorie Perloff said, that sense, of, that, that sense of mystery, that sense of irresolution that characterizes so much good poetry. Mm. And I think that's definitely was my experience as well when I first came across the Tractatus, which was a few years, I was a few years older than you, I guess I was in my second year of university. And one of the things that appealed to me about it was the fact it seemed to to stand alone and stand mm. independent from any other work of philosophy. You didn't need any background to engage with it. You didn't need any particular knowledge of any other um, strand of philosophy or previous philosophers who come before. Um, and there was something about that sort of, that isolation in a way that, um, that set it apart for me. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a universe all of its own, and it's, it, that's really what it's trying to be. It, it's, it's also possibly the most ambitious poetry book ever written in that it really mm. is trying to solve all of the problems in philosophy. Wittgenstein says right at the end that if you've understood this book, you can, as he says, you can climb up the ladder and throw the ladder away. You don't really, you don't even need the book in some ways once you've absorbed the book. Um, a, a word that's often used, um, uh, Terry Eagleton used this word in, in his, his unfilmed um, screenplay for Germans, Wittgenstein, it's very crystalline. It has, mm-hmm. it, on the one hand, it is utterly impenetrable in parts. I, you know, I've, I've now spent 20 years thinking about this book and there are lines, but I have no fucking idea what he's talking about. <laughs> oh, sorry, I should ask, is, is it okay to curse, by the way, once in a while? I, I'm not a very swearing okay person, but um, great. <laughs> Good. Um, yes, you know, the, the, there are passages that seem absolutely beautiful and like, like some of the best lines in mm-hmm. English poetry, you know, um, whereof we cannot speak, we must pass over in silence, the world mm-hmm. is all that is the case, and so on and so on. But there are other lines that are just extraordinarily... Um, uh, difficult and opaque. Um, mm. So, that, and, and part of what led me to write about it in the particular way that I did was then to connect this, this, as you say, this strange sense of this kind of this crystalline universe all to itself. This thing that's like some 
beautiful Fabergé egg that's that's at once kind of fragile, but on the other hand, kind of astonishingly kind of hard and permanent with mm-hmm. the circumstances in which it was written. Right. This was really how I came to write the book was I, 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 I as I say, I encountered the Tractatus when I was about 17. About a decade later, I read Ray Monk's extraordinary mm-hmm. biography. Even if you have no interest in philosophy, it's well worth reading The Duty of Genius. It is the Excellent. most extraordinary, deep, rich biography of, 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 of any 20th century figure. And Monk makes the point that that this book was shaped so strongly. Indeed, much of it was was written in the the, the trenches of the Eastern Front during the First mm-hmm. World War, and I, not even on the front line. Wittgenstein volunteered for what was just about the most dangerous job in the whole First World War, which was to be a forward artillery observer. So he's in front of the front line, trying mm-hmm. to direct um, uh, his own his own Austro-Hungarian shells falling on the enemy, trying to dodge the enemy, who of course are desperately trying to put him out of action. Um, and what struck me as extraordinary is really two things. Firstly, when he when he talks about this later in his life, he talks about the peace of it. He seems mm-hmm. to have found this extraordinary clarity and almost this sense of eternity and immortality in what, for almost anybody else, would be this 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 violent, appalling, traumatic, deathly struggle. Um, right, uh, uh, I think it was a late thirties. He writes a letter to his nephew and almost offhandedly says in this letter, "The war saved me." I don't know what I'd have done without it. And that, that became one of the epigraphs of the book because growing up as, as, I, as I did sort of in England in, in the 80s, I, I, I learned about the First World War and to some extent about English poetry through reading Sassoon and Owen and the war poets. Mm-hmm. And you get a very particular take on what the war was like. The, 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 the kind of the, the really important move, the kind of central move of the English war poets is disillusionment. They go off to mm-hmm. war thinking it's going to be a kind of honourable patriotic struggle and what they discover is, you know, mud, mud, blood, devastation and so on. And... Not that that's wrong, but I loved the way that Wittgenstein's line offered a different take on the war, that mm-hmm. the war could mean different things to everybody who fought in it. And, and you know, for, for, for him, it really becomes the, it, be, it becomes this place where he, he, he encounters meaning and mortality and kind of works out what he's for, if you like. Mm-hmm. He, it gives him this sense of duty, not just military duty, but kind of personal duty that, that, yeah. that carries him through the rest of his life. What is the distance, O Lord, between one moment and another? God says, Who speaks? Why is there something here when there should be nothing? 5.51 Faith in the action, not the word, the body, not the breath. To fall is to break, to speak. 5.52 Lanterns in the dark, the rivers up, the skull of the moon, impact polished, flesh unsoftened, a column of horses, silent, muscled, heads bowed like penitents. They've broken through. Lemberg, though, is still in our hands. 5.6. The limits of my language mean the limits of my world, and the limit of my world is the road. 5.61. The road is all that is the case. Going on is all that is. The howl of spent flesh is all. The banality of pain, its emptiness. 5.62. Happiness depends upon my realising the limits of the sense of the world. The sense of the world must lie outside the world. No sense within, babbling into the dark like a child. 5.7. We are children. We do not know whether the sun will rise tomorrow. Is there comfort in this proposition? Or sense? 5.71. Logic must take care of itself. God will not say, what kept you? 5.711. I am a compound noun in a picture book alphabet. 
Ludwig Saddle Reins Horseshoes Road. I ride a rocking horse. I wave a wooden sword. I triumph in my nursery. 5.712. A child knows how to go on. 5.72. A stone. The body of a beast. The body of a man. My body. All stand on the same level. My soul is my centre of gravity and no more. God says you will keep on whether you want to or not until you fall whether you want to or not. This night more a trampled than picked off. You cowards, stand and fight for your emperor. 5.8, they know how to go on. Stepping out of their rags, grinning, they join the retreat. 5.81, some march with us, some watch, some shuddered into monstrous forms, some cuddled up as if asleep. 5.811, the salivation of dead things. Salvation, rather. The discourse of the dead, their squeaks, their intolerable dance. 5.812, the equal self, unpicked, bone bare, the name and nothing else, or not even that. 5.813, paused in resurrection, palms out, gaping, we wait on them. Franz Josef is tot. Lemberg, though, is still in our hands. 5.82, our emperor leads us. 5.821, his whiskers tickle lipless teeth, his medals clink on ribs, he is master of the men who cannot bleed. 5.822, Fräulein tote on her pony, demure and hollow-hipped, raw sockets behind her fan, sloppy trombones, Jew's harp, bass drum. 5.823, we fall in after them. We know how to go on. We scream with joy. 5.9. The world of the happy is quite another than that of the unhappy. I'd like to pick up on that. Because to me, there seems almost a little sort of contradiction in the sort of mm. what the way we encounter the tractators and um, Wittgenstein almost as a character. Because I, I remember having the same sort of profound experience when reading Raymond's biography of... Um, being struck by what an incredibly, I suppose, strange and charismatic mm. and unusual personality uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein was. Like one might be forgiven for reading the track when reading the Tractatus, probably less so when reading his later works, but particularly the Tractatus of imagining a kind of Kantian sort of you know guy who lived isolated all of his life, did the same walk every day for forty years, never really engaged with people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas in fact Wittgenstein, he he was very much in the world he was very much kind of engaged not just with uh the the sort of the the realm of ideas but with the the kind of the, the yeah the, the, i guess the physical experience yeah he he was by all i mean charisma is always the hardest thing for any kind of historian or biographer to capture but by all accounts he was the most intensely charismatic um teacher and friend and and, and enemy as well of course to so many so many of his contemporaries um and th there's there's a, a lovely line again later in his correspondence where he says that he he likes to take a business-like approach to, to philosophy he doesn't mm. want to sort of swim in philosophy he wants a sort of business desk and an in-tray and an out-tray and he wants to solve problems and move on and go and do something else. Philosophy for him is not a life or a lifestyle or God help him, a profession or a discipline. It, it's a it's a way of kind of clearing out the undergrowth so that mm. you can get on with whatever the hell you want to get on with. Um, and I, I think that 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 resonated very strongly with a, another fact from the from the monk biography I was very struck with is that quite early, quite early in the war he has a religious crisis mm -hmm. he encounters Tolstoy's the gospel in brief in a in a, a bookshop um, at a railway station he's, he's passing through this town he just needs something to read and it's it's Tolstoy's kind of attempt to strip back the gospel 
and to almost turn the gospel into a kind of philosophical tract. He sort of cuts out what he sees as all the ephemera of the gospel and just leaves what he, what he, what he sees as the kind of philosophical and religious truth. And Wittgenstein becomes, for, certainly for the rest of the war and for, for some time afterwards, a kind of Tolstoyan Christian. Mm-hmm. And that led me into thinking about him as a holy fool which mm. just what you were saying about him, I think that's another way of kind of putting the the same thing. He becomes someone like Bernard of Clairvaux, or I think better mm. still, St. Francis of Assisi, this kind of wanderer, if you like, this man who attracts disciples, this man who is able to kind of approach the universe from an angle that nobody ever really has before. Mm-hmm. And to say, you know, things that, that might seem utterly meaningless to one person, but to seem kind of deeply meaningful and profound to another. So I, yeah, I, I absolutely know what you mean. There's a, there's a sort of discipleship that comes with reading him. And I, I certainly for a long time fell into that myself. Mm. And just, just to, to engage with um, the poem itself. And I, I said in the introduction, I, I referred to both of your books as collections, but then it didn't feel quite the right word for, <laughs> for either of them. And I think we'll, we'll come on to that later. Cause I, I suppose uh, in a sense, your, your book is, it's, it's, it's a poem rather than a collection. Yeah, I, I think of it as a long poem. Mm. I mean, to, to be honest, I don't really care how people talk yeah. about it. I care if they buy it and read it. But um, yeah, it's it. I, I think of it as a kind of long poem mm. modelled in the way that the model after the Tractatus yeah. is, as it were. It's it's this is a slightly pretentious way to put it, but it's like one long jazz solo. You know, okay. it's one, it's yeah, one yeah. long piece, as it were, like Ashbury or somebody like that. It's one long thing, um, and within that, the, uh, we, we've we've talked already about the kind of the the, the crystalline formality mm. of the Tractatus. It really is, as I've said, kind of one long. Um, uh, a piece of music or something mm-hmm. like that, and of course, being a slightly sort of cranky—I don't want to say postmodernist, but ar- kind of after-modernist poet, if you like—what mm-hmm. I immediately wanted to do was to hit it with a hammer uh-huh. and break up this beauty and fragment yeah, it and yeah, shatter yeah. it and bring in other voices. And I, 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 again, the, the 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 impenetrability of the poem here became really useful because mm-hmm. once you start thinking about the war, especially that—I mean, good lord—the chaos of the Eastern Front. Mm. We in Western Europe, I think in the kind of Anglophone world, we have no idea about that part of the First World War. And it was extraordinarily destructive and, and, mm-hmm. and traumatic for those who went through it. I mean, in many ways, I think, kind of lays the groundwork for the the, 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 the appalling history of, of, of Eastern Europe in the in the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. But you, the, the impenetrability of the Tractatus became a way to kind of capture that aspect of military life. Yeah. You know, orders battle, sort of bellowed across a, a sort of battlefield where shells are flying. All the, you know, the Austro-Hungarian army was a polyglot army. Mm-hmm. It was composed of all sorts of different ethnicities and peoples and nations. I don't think the troops would have necessarily expected to understand one another. Yeah, so that yeah. became a way to kind of draw out the the sort of the chaos and the the, the fragment blah, blah, the fragmentary nature of his experience. And I, you know, in some ways, the most powerful thing he did with this book, which is from that extraordinarily traumatic, fragmentary experience, draw this beautiful crystalline sort of temple of a book yeah 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 one um one thing you talk about sort of breaking apart the the form and yet one thing that that struck me um at least the way that the the poem is essentially bookended is that i mean you begin with the um with the line silence is not the end of it Mm. which is of course if people know the tractatus echoing the final line of the of the tractatus and at the end of the poem Mm. you you echo the start of the tractatus and my my thought when sort of you know, approaching it, and I say from a kind of a non-poetic perspective, was that perhaps what you were trying, what you were doing with it was in some way sort of inverting mm. the text of the Tractator, sort of perhaps showing readers kind of the the underside of what Wittgenstein w- was doing. Does that, does that sound like a fair... That, 
That's I, I, I've, I've sort of been waiting for somebody to notice that. So thank you very much. No, that's that's exactly what I do. Partly what it was, I, I was I was very being a being a being a young idiot. I read Finnegan's Wake all the way through, and I was very struck by the way that that book becomes a kind of loop. You know, you can literally. Sure. I think Joyce even talked about having it bound without a front cover and a back mm-hmm. cover, so it's just a loop of pages going around, and you can you can sort of get to the end and just start again. God, which which is a certain vision of hell, of course, being trapped mm-hmm. in Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> but um, no, I, I it, it, it was partly that I like I like loops, I like structure. I like all those mm. kind of modernist techniques, but no, absolutely. I, I, I wanted, I wanted, well, you've already said it very well, to be honest. So I should just say, yes, that's exactly what I was trying to do. But yes, I, I wanted to take the Tractatus and kind of, kind of show the working a bit, kind of pull down the facade and kind of show the, show the bricks and the mechanism and all that yeah, behind yeah. it. Um, turning to you, Luke, on the subject of kind of uh, iconoclasm, um, mm. I guess there are, there are fewer more um, sort of iconic poets to engage with uh, in the English language than um, than Shakespeare. And um, I, it, when I when I saw the book Notes on the Sonnets, I kind of, I, well, I, I, I know your work a little bit by now, so I wasn't expecting a kind of a, an obvious response to, um, you know, a sort of direct, a sort of a, a straightforward engagement with, yeah. um, with Shakespeare's work. But I certainly wasn't expecting um, what we got. <laughs> um, so, would you be able to just talk a little bit about the 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 origins of this project, like how um, the sort of the engagement with Shakespeare's sonnets within the context of a sort of sprawling house party first kind of took root with you? Yeah, I've just been taking loads of notes. Thank you <laughs> for that, Richard. Um, Something that you said a moment ago about coming to a text without preconceptions really resonated with me, I suppose, in terms of just going back to the sonnets and just trying to read them, I suppose, read them as if they were one long poem mm-hmm. and immerse myself in some of the critical material surrounding them and not getting too, used to mining that for any little interesting details, but not getting too, not not getting too bogged down in the arguments around who is who is the second person in various different sequences of the i find that rather uninteresting in a way and i think i, I suppose I, what i find more interesting is just the general thirst and emotional incontinence of the speaker mm. who is consistent throughout the poems and that we tend to see them as great love poems and, and more often it's it's a really troubling and problematic kind of love that's mm. being discussed it's often it's possessiveness and jealousy and and a great self-consciousness about how the speaker has no right to be feeling this way say about two people he was having an affair with taking up with each other and then feeling extremely jealous of both of them and, <laughs> you know the the, the 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 emotions that are often described are ambivalent and contradictory and self-destructive and just plain stupid sometimes as well and I, I think just reading them for that was enjoyable the setting of the house party I guess I've been thinking about like quite a lot and what I mean it literally started the first poem um I, the narrator claims to have met somebody at a party who says that he can recite any one of the sonnets from memory if you just give him the number mm. but then he gives him the number 66 and the man refuses to recite 66 so either he's just lying but then he gives him another number and he can just rattle it rattle, rattle it off um which which did not actually happen to me but i was at a party maybe it was it was the merging of maybe three different parties but there was one where everybody was taking cocaine and i found the whole experience very alienating <laughs> most, most people are kind of 
we're mostly full of ourselves enough. <laughs> it just doesn't doesn't really suit me. It's a bit of a busman's holiday for me as a drug. Um, and some of, I suppose, just yeah, this this commingling of various different parties. I think also just the the the, the sonnets themselves, the one hundred and fifty four sonnets, are actually quite a crowded space. So you've got this sort of idea of the lyric poem as this ultimate apotheosis of of self-description and definition and storytelling about oneself but actually there's a sort of crowd of voices and mm. extreme worry and paranoia about what other people think of you that comes through in 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 the sonnets um and there was something for me in just creating that collective space mm-hmm. and putting the lyric in this polyphonic collective space that just felt exciting in itself mm-hmm. As, just as an exercise but it just started out as a sort of one-off poem on sonnet 66 with the anecdote about the man who claims he has memorized all of Shakespeare's sonnets and then and then I just did a few more and kept the setting kind of consistent mm. you know sometimes it's sometimes the poem's very clearly in different rooms at the party mm. or in kind of rooms that you're not supposed to be in in somebody else's house and things like that um and some of them less so some of them are just in the in the narrator's head or just mm-hmm. recounting some dreams and things like that they always take off from a particular image or idea mm-hmm. within one of the sonnets and they're all sort of they're all kind of tortured love poems in one way or another and i think part of my thinking was that i wanted it to be the sonnets but reconfigured by a fool mm. essentially right? <laughs> which i think at times is sort of the case in the sonnets already but i wanted to really put that first and foremost and you've really eloquently talked about the contradictions I think in the book and probably just in my work generally mm. sort of at times quite self-assured but mostly self-cannibalistically <laughs> outful. Um, but then in in the original sonnets there are all of these systems of knowledge and interpretation things just being turned around to various different angles and I was like, well let's let's look at this from a medical point of view mm. let's see if any of the metaphors for how I feel about you will make sense in that context. And obviously now all of these, especially the medical ones, are all completely obsolete, Mm -hmm. as are various other ways of thinking within the sonnets. But I guess I felt that, and all the sort of magical thinking, but then a lot lot of those superstitions and ways of magical thinking are still very much with us, Mm -hmm. even if we don't believe in, say, the humours anymore. We have plenty of other things that have come up in place of that. Um, And our ways of actually living, often sort of without reason, still feel quite pertinent to a lot of the a lot of the sort of damaged thinking within mm-hmm. within the sonnets this maybe goes back to the kind of iconoclasm as well in that I, they, they are mostly quite insolent i felt particularly with with the really well-known sonnets like let me not to a marriage of true minds and shall i compare thee to a summer's day that they, you know that they had to be particularly anti-poetic my responses to those and in some of them i was freer to be a little bit more sincere or lyrical and um, but with the with the really beautiful sonnets the really amazing pieces of work that was where i had to be really aggressively unpoetic yeah yeah, yeah. there's there's a lot and um, what you said that i'd like to unpick but can we just coming back to this idea of of the party because the one thing that it put me in mind of is a uh, it, it, I think it's quite a little-known book at least little known i think in the anglophone world but um in french the title is uh, la grande beuverie 
uh, by a writer called uh, René Domal, who was sort of, he came out sort of surrealist and sort of a bit, little bit connected to the kind of the pataphysical movement of Alfred Jarry. And it is, in English, it's available, I think, as um, A Night of Serious Drinking, um, which doesn't quite do the, the title justice, but um, but it's it's very difficult to get Vevry in English. But one thing, that starts in a kind of a, a bar um, and there are people all around and that's, you know, the, the narrator over his conversations. And then it kind of moves to different rooms. I think he goes through a trapdoor at one moment into these sort of, sort of imaginary sort of what's well, it's, mm. kind of imaginary but also very kind of embodied very kind of physical spaces and he's able to kind of um explore ideas and sentiments within this kind of uh defined physical space even if that is then stretched and uh and played yeah. with and kind of undermined and i felt yeah you were doing a very sort of similar thing that it felt that in a way having uh the the context of the house party and the different rooms and the type of people one might meet and the 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 drugs or the the alcohol that's being consumed gave you almost a foil against which to mm. to offset the po- your engagement with the poems that's really good yeah yeah definitely that and i think it allowed me to just merge different spaces real and imaginary spaces mm. there are moments small moments of kind of autobiography I guess like there was there was a party I was at where I was just about to order a taxi back to my hotel and then saw the logo of the hotel reflected in my glass and realized that the flat I'd ended up in was <laughs> right next to the travel lodge or whatever it is that I room in, and that I needed only to leap off the balcony and I'd be I'd be in my hotel um but then I think that yeah there are times where it feels like I think that that sort of struck me as a really nice circular thing. And it's mm. like, am I trapped in some kind of horrible underworld of constant house parties? And I thought that's <laughs> quite a nice pattern for um, for this sequence. And it sort of seems to be sort of, I think in throughout all of the poems, there's a certain um, progression of time, but it almost feels like it's, it's just permanently 2am. Mm. It's permanently the point where the party is either in full swing or it's starting to dissipate. People are either at their very best and most honest and their true selves, or they are actually completely intoxicated and talking nonsense mm-hmm. so that relationship between meaninglessness and meaning was what i really wanted to play with and it's also one where you can just be rather sly and just smuggle in some quite sincere reflections on mm-hmm. theology and one's own kind of crises of faith or mm-hmm. troubled thinking about faith and that sort of thing and you can kind of get away with that because like in the same way that a fool can mm-hmm. you know so like the, the fools in i mean i just love all of the fool characters in shakespeare mm-hmm. one that i can come back to is um was it Thirsties or something in um, Troilus and Cressida, who is one of the most perceptive, I guess, characters uh-huh. in the play in his relationship to Achilles. And just, I don't know, the fact that you can, you can smuggle in some quite sincere expressions of things uh-huh. that are really bugging you. And mm-hmm. sort of, and I, I think I always like poems where you can see the thinking happening on the page. Uh-huh. I like poems that feel almost unfinished in that way. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's what really gets me going that's what makes me feel like writing and that's what makes me feel like just engaging with the world and with literature again and so there's something in that ambivalent position um where you can be sort of attempting to be funny and Mm -hmm. deadly serious at the same time but that seemed to go with the slightly hyper real settings various settings mm-hmm. that some some of it is almost like i mean some of it is almost like observational comedy I mean, right it's sort yeah. of lowest the most demotic parts of the book is just like oh do you you know when you're at a party and somebody does this mm-hmm. or someone says this you know some of it some of it is really basic mm-hmm. but i but being able to 
mingle that with all of the different systems of understanding that kind of come through in the sonnets and being able to riff on those yeah, and being able yeah, to yeah. just do do some light research into them at times mm-hmm. and, and that, that, that just felt like a it just felt like a helpful construct for mm-hmm. me and it, helped, it felt like a helpful thing i suppose like richard was saying about having having this this form and this text that you are constantly in love with and at war mm-hmm. with it's really sustaining and this was meant to just be a side project right when i started it out it wasn't i wasn't really thinking of doing all of them and just got rather carried away and i was supposed to be working on a book about jonah mm-hmm. um the old testament prophet and and ended up just putting that aside completely uh-huh. and just working on this and just just trying to write sort of one a day and then go back i think by the end and i pictured it as like a giant pamphlet that uh-huh. was my plan for this i was going to go and talk to some weird little arty presses and just say can you do a book that is incredibly cheap but about 200 pages long <laughs> on just like the worst quality paper so that i can sell it for like a pound or something like that you know can you do that because these are real this is really at that time i was like these are just little improvisations <laughs> and they're maybe completely worthless but i'd still there are bits of them that i like and i still like it to be out there and then I just mentioned to Tom Chivers at Pendulum Marges, I was working this, right, send it to me, let me at least have a look at it. Yeah. And he felt like it had potential. And he was like, this is good. About half of them are okay. And about <laughs> half of them, I think you just need to have another runner. Mm-hmm. So I kind of did. And again, but again, it still felt kind of loose and improvisatory. And it was only in the final edits that I was able to go back through and say, right, so what, what's the through line here? Mm-hmm. What can I kind of layer into the poems that isn't currently there? What can I, what's the potential with mm-hmm with this i like that stage of editing i like that point where it's like okay, what have i got here i've just splurged a load of stuff down onto the page and like what can actually be done to it to shape it a bit more and actually yeah, make yeah, it a bit yeah. more involved and give people something to something to play with and struggle with in that mm. in that low-grade finnegan's weight kind of way <laughs> 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 nothing like as ambitious as that but like that thing that you want to give people something to puzzle over i guess sure. give you, at least or at least imply that it's worth struggling over mm. right <laughs> <laughs> This is based on Sonnet 6, which in the original has the lines, that's for thyself to breed another thee, or ten times happier, be it ten for one, ten times thyself were happier than thou art, if ten of thine ten times refigured be. Sonnet 6. I had a dream that there were ten of you, and we lived in a duplex overlooking the river. It was the only nice part of town. I wanted to make ten of you happy, but it was difficult, and mostly I felt like I was letting at least eight of you down. Even though the ten of you were exactly you, and exactly the same, you cannot stroke ten people's hair and tell them they are good, they are so good, and oh the divergent seconds where lived experience changed you. Even the inanities. I love what you've done to your hair. Is that a new top? Could you just shift over a little? I didn't think I was up to the job. So this is a job for you. I don't want to make any special claims here. Nobody ever walked down to a river without at least considering taking a dive. We only owned nine mugs, for instance. And it only struck me years later, snow fishing in a void I'd learned to wrap around myself how easy it would have been for me to do something about that. 
But this one comes from Sonnet 29. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes. I have lost one of my shoes. All that follows is spoken by a man wearing one shoe. You seemed very comfortable with a brain surgeon. She's a neuroscientist. Whatever. We're just friends. I was lonely. Her clothes were very smooth. You make a cocktail and call it amygdala hijack. Oh, poor me. Poor you. Observers of our own predicament. Lads on tour chanting God will forgive us. How far you can fall in everybody's estimation is proportional to the silent claims you always made on them. Nonetheless, I think of you and wouldn't change place with anyone. Lying is one of the most sophisticated operations of the prefrontal cortex. The liar paradox is only unresolvable in languages which are semantically closed. We needn't moralise. In the end, to lie is to choose a meaningless universe. No one's saying it's easy to be honourable, but if you're not, you find yourself in uncharted territory, and it's scary. It's scary, man. I am saying this on stage at a book festival to the six people in the audience. They are looking at me like a sell-by date. Does Cream of Tartar even go off? You can't change anything once it's published. Afterwards, I sign one book. The man tells me to make it out to myself and to rewrite it to include this scene. On the three-hour drive home, the clutch feels deep and chewy under my bare foot. An M40 diversion ejects me like a bad idea, and I end up going round in circles in the Vale of Evesham until I run out of petrol outside a walled garden. I can see lanterns. I can hear a string quartet. And this is this is a question, I guess, which uh, will bring Richard back in for, for this as well, because, um, and again, uh, I have to stress, you know, I'm coming at this from... Uh, the perspective of a novelist rather than a poet and of somebody who has a sort of a sort of a guilty uh, lack of engagement with a lot of um, contemporary poetry. Like I always feel I should be reading more than mm. I do. Um, and I think sort of somebody who doesn't read a lot of poetry might pick up both of your books and be surprised that these books are called poetry. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, Richard, um, your book, sort of the text resembles uh, the Tractatus, which we have said resembles a poem mm. in certain ways, but is is structured like a philosophical text. Luke, yours is uh, essentially paragraphs of of pro, or, or, you know, what mm. look like prose on the page. Mm. Um, and so, if you forgive the sort of what I'm sure is a very sort of ignorant <laughs> question, I'd I'd be interested to hear what both of you think it is about these books that make them poetry rather than something else. Oh, good lord! Uh, well, Luke's been talking for a while, so I'll give him a break. Um, I, I mean, this 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 goes back to that whole Marcel Duchamp argument, isn't it? Really, mm. doesn't it? Really? And I mean, it, mm. it is poetry because we are poets and we say that they're poems. Mm. Um, I mean, I, if I'm speaking personally, there's a certain there's a certain kind of musical rhythmicality about the lines that characterises poetry for me. But then you find that in a lot of prose as well. It's attention paid to structure, but again, you find that in a lot of prose. I, yeah, I, I, I really. I really sort of don't feel qualified and in a certain way I'm not interested in answering mm -hmm. that question. You know, I, I, I sort of want to put this out there as poetry and see what people say about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the healthiest position possible, <laughs> really. You know, like I, I go back to, I guess I go back to um, Baudelaire's Petit Poems on Prose. Mm -hmm. Forgive my complete lack of any sort of pronunciation. But um, Francis Scarf's translations of those I really love and the parallel text of that, even though I have so little French 
tragically to my own shame um but it's really lovely to read them in parallel but those those pieces those prose poems and Baudelaire was perhaps the first one to really try to define what a prose poem was and some of them are I mean they're all just sort of miniatures really mm-hmm. the sort of thing that in in other cultures and countries would have just been called a fragment mm-hmm. or a miniature or or just text you know and it's but he sort of put his neck on the line and and was deliberately provocative enough to say these are poems and some of them are 13 pages long and have dialogue and are just little anecdotes mm-hmm. usually in which the narrator behaves obscenely or cruelly and often with some intention of highlighting a kind of hypocrisy in 19th century Paris of one kind or another um I suppose that was always quite a big because they're so they're so grouchy and funny and strange and the little observations within them are are often quite perverse but sort of ring true Mm -hmm. I think reading those at a reasonably formative age at university was 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 quite a, an influence on me, and maybe also just removed any anxiety about form. Mm-hmm. There are some, I guess, like because I feel like you know when when a writer like Don Patterson publishes a book of forty sonnets or or publishes like Rain that is entirely in traditional rhyming forms, I always feel like that's because he's got tired of like friends saying. Oh, but Don, it's not really poetry, is it? It's poetry. It's not. So it's like, it's like, well, fuck you. I'm going to write. <laughs> Here are seven thousand pantoons just to show you that I can do it. Now shut up. And it's like, like I could do that, but I don't want to. Like, I'd rather just pursue the sort of form that actually calls to me, the one where I actually feel like there's the expansiveness to unfold the ideas yeah. and then fold them back in again. And so I just, yeah, I don't know. I think when I was in my twenties, I generally just was terribly worried about that sort of thing mm-hmm. and be upset about people saying oh, it's not really poetry and now it's like it's, it's absolutely fine uh-huh. just, <laughs> like you know engage with it in some way and yeah. even if that's to kind of despise it that's well that's on that subject of engaging with it because that was another question i was going to put to both of you was because both of your books uh, have a sort of a source text uh, behind them and yet neither of them incorporate that that mm. source text into mm. into the work itself i mean so luke you mm. have um the you know the first line of each sonnet before before each 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 poem um mm. and richard you have um you know sort of allusions to uh Wittgenstein's language but it's it, as far as i remember there are no sort of direct um citations although there might be, there, might be. There, are, there are actually about 15 lines okay. if, if anybody is interested god help them they can go to my website where there is a sort of uh, uh, citation yes. list but i, I did I, I i that was a conscious choice not to put that in the book i didn't want people distracted by that mm. um, it's not a it's not a scholarly text it is a poem well this is so this is a question about distractions so um for, so when i was reading your book richard i felt that i knew the tractatus well enough from having studied it in the past that mm. i didn't need to go back to it before engaging with your work my knowledge of Shakespeare's sonnets, rather embarrassingly, considering <laughs> the, the bookshop that I work at, is much <laughs> less than um, that it was with with the Tractatus. And uh, I, I confess, Luke, I wasn't sure what might be the kind of the correct way to um, to approach your work. Whether I should familiarise myself with each sonnet before reading each poem or not. Now. I can imagine probably from both of you, the response would be non-prescriptive. Um, mm. But I'm just curious to know if you've had any sort of different responses from readers about how they have engaged with the the source text alongside sure. your work or not, and how that's affected the 
the the reading or the understanding of the of the work. Can, can I jump straight in here because sure. I, I this this was something I was thinking about. I, I, Luke, I've been reading a book over the last week, and 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 I I really liked the um the approach of just having a single line at the top i really mm. liked I, I i felt if I, I i sort of thought should i should i go and read this on it should i go and try and digest these and actually no i'd have got completely lost in it and it would have distracted yeah. from what you were doing <laughs> and no it was lovely it, it always reminded there's, there's there's that um uh, a, a christian technique of lectio divina where you just take a single line and you sort of chew it over in your mind and digest oh, it and so gosh, on. I, yeah. I loved that sort of way of each 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 of your each of your paragraphs as a kind of jumping off or a riff or just just where your mind as of how it took you from these particular mm. lines no i thought i thought that worked absolutely superbly um with the with wherever for what it's worth i i certainly tried to write a poem that could stand alone and that mm. what i was attempting to do was to so that somebody could pick this up who knew nothing about philosophy and mm. read it as a love story, a war poem, all of those kind of traditional genres of English poetry, but also that somebody who who was very engaged with Wittgenstein could read it and could get something. And I, one of the most terrifying gigs of my life about two months ago was speaking at the, the British Wittgenstein Society had a, oh, a Tractatus wow. Centenary. And they, <laughs> I, it was one of those ones where you slightly worry whether you're being set up. I got, I got, I got a very kind of attention to come and read. And I thought, oh, shit, am I, am I just the straw man here? Am I the kind mm. of... <laughs> the, the, the scapegoat in the in the sort of strict sense, um, but no, actually, I, it's talking to a room full of love, I was I was delighted with how happy they were to engage with this, mm. um, how open they were to thinking about about sort of the text as a as a as a poem as a kind of aesthetic thing, and and to bringing in his life. I know philosophers are sometimes very resistant to the idea that the that the life informs the work. I think in Wittgenstein's mm. case, it's quite hard to um, to sort of argue that. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so I I. I to go back to your question, no, I mean, I, I, readers, I've been really heartened that readers have generally got the point. They mm. get the point that there are many different stories going on here and you don't need a kind of tight knowledge of the philosophy to uh, to, to, mm. to digest it. Mm. And Luke? Yeah, I've, I've had, a sort, I suppose, a sort of split response in a way. So people who've mentioned to me that they read it almost as if it was just a weird novel which I quite like mm -hmm. and I, it's because I, I mean I guess it only really gathers any kind of narrative pace in the last sort of part or two where things feel a bit more sequential mm -hmm. um but I do like that approach to it as well and I like the way that the editor typeset it almost just to imply that and the the first lines thing was was like absolutely came from him we discussed various different formats but actually that looks really good mm -hmm. and there, but there are bits and the, yeah and then I've had like friends or acquaintances who sort of said that they absolutely read it in parallel with the sonnet in question and just read the sonnet first and then went to the prose poem to see if they could see what I was doing because sometimes it's a bit oblique like sometimes it's obvious sometimes I'm absolutely writing about um I don't know the calendar act that came in yes. sort of change, changes the date and shall I compare them to a summer's day and um so sometimes which puts, we should say to our listeners the darling buds of may on july the 17th is that a, yeah, yeah i think I, I stretched that a little bit so it was the same so it became a frankahara reference but it'd be sometime in june basically <laughs> so it was more summary but um yeah so, and other times it was literally like there'd just be a mention of a beach in one of the sonnets. I'd be like, okay, I can take that. And then I can try and get something else in from the sonnet into this, but I just want to write about this one weird little memory um, and then see if I can bring it around mm -hmm. to um, the mood of the sonnet and what's going on there. And other times I get sort of just annoyed quite often, and especially in the early parts of the, of the, the early sonnets, it, numerically, whenever they were actually written, 
Um, there's so much, I think I write about this really irritably in the book, there's so much of a focus on ageing and mm. absolute fixation on wrinkles. And, and that just, I think that's always kind of left me cold. Like we're all, we are all young precisely once. And we obviously we all have extremely different lives and various levels of hardship and injustice, some many more than others, but we are all young for the same amount of time. And I just felt like, get, oh God, get over it. Get over <laughs> it. Like, honestly, if you can't, find yourself attractive or the people around you attractive. <laughs> I mean, that's why you went, oh God. It just, that just, it just struck me as just such sort of shoddy thinking that has more in common with like Heat magazine taking photos of off-duty celebrities than with any sort of higher literary culture. And I was like, the, the sort of pettiness and the silliness of that. Like, let's let's write about that. Mm-hmm. What a weird thing to have in a love poem. Oh, you'll be old soon. You won't, you won't be as hot for about 15 years time. Ah, oh, what a tragedy that is. And it's like, that's awful. What shallow thinking, and it's, and that felt really worth getting irritated about. I just uh, so that so sometimes just a certain kind of irritation just takes over and dominates our poem. So I've had people saying, oh, "I can really see what you're doing in every one," and then I've had people say, "I, I don't." What was X? You know, several numbers. Like, what were you even talking about there? How did that come from the original sonnet? Um, in, I think in most cases, I can just about still remember mm. if I go back through. But again, I guess similar to Richard, I didn't want to provide a full set of notes on exactly what my thinking mm. was in because I, I felt like that would spoil it a little yeah, bit yeah, also yeah. it feels like giving away giving away the trick a little bit too much and also like it makes it less porous it closes things down it stops people from being able to have their own relationship to it to yeah, the original yeah. sonnets and to my prose poems because I, I want people to kind of feel like doing their own in some ways or, or taking any other text and kind of doing, writing into it in a similar yeah, yeah. way. I don't know. And concerning um, your relationships with the text, uh, has, has the process of, of writing these books uh, changed your relationship? I mean, I had the sense, Richard, from what you said, that uh, this has been sort of an, an enduring thing, something that was sort of sparked at 17 and you mm, had to mm. kind of almost get out of your system. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Is the yeah. sort of... Was the writing process and the sort of publication of this book, has that in some way got the tractators out of your system or has it dragged you kind of deeper into it? Yeah, what it's done actually is is kicked me on to, um, I should say, a bit precise notable in the history of philosophy for having a kind of a a sort of early philosophy embodied in the Tractatus and a later philosophy, which is essentially a kind of repudiation of almost Mm -hmm. everything he he said as a... (laughs) As a young man, and it's it, it sort of I, I've I've heard a number of philosophers say that when when you, when you, when you're a young man, the Tractatus is much more appealing. It's mm. sort of rigid and structured, and almost back to what Luke was saying about the kind of the the appeals and the anxiety of formalism um, when you're younger. But as you get older, the the older philosophy is a bit more battered and a bit more mm. wise, and it's sort of happier. It's happier with uncertainty. It's happier with that sort of sense where we don't we don't know mm. we don't know where we're going. We don't know um, what in some ways what we're doing. So it it's got the Tractatus out of my system in that sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've sort of, I've, I've come in, in writing wherever I've sort of come to my own understanding of the Tractatus, whatever that may be for what it's worth, it's embodied in wherever. Um, and yeah, so I've, I've sort of, I've sort of moved on a kind of slightly sort of sadder and wiser man to the, uh, the older. <laughs> um, but no, it, it's, it's still, it's still something I sort of, I, I, I've, I've taken it down probably, probably once a month since I published mm-hmm. the book, just to, just to look over it and sort of see it, see it still there and sort of see how it feels, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, 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 it Perhaps it's a pretentious thing to say, but it's like an old friend, you know. Mm-hmm. You sort of you sort of see them and you live with them, and you can't just put them aside. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And Luke, the sonnets. How, how how I could only imagine that it was quite a. I don't know when when reading um, notes on the sonnets, it felt quite a sort of um, what's quite the, sort of a, an avoiding experience on your part. Like it mm-hmm. seemed that you sort of mm-hmm. uh, you know you said some of these are 
connected to real memories, others a pure invention, but it really felt mm. that you were sort of excavating uh, yeah. a lot of your life and a lot of your thoughts. Has that sort of, have they yeah. become kind of attached now to the sonnets in your mind? A little, yeah. No, there was something, definitely something purgative about the experience, but I think also just coming to it almost, coming to the work so deliberately impertinently mm. as well and wanting to avoid doing something you know, in in a way that any redirection or restaging of a Shakespeare play does that, I guess. Mm. It's like, you know, there's 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 a respect and a disrespect that comes in. But I think it did it sort of perversely made me sort of love them more mm. as individual poems and love some of the stranger cast off ones a bit more too. Mm. There's a there's a there's one poem in Eugene O'Negan's um sorry, in Pushkin's Eugene O'Negan um where he just he just expresses his own disgust for his own project. Mm-hmm. It's just, I am so sick of this rhyme scheme that I've developed. I'm so sick of writing about this idiot and I'm so sick of this whole form. And th- th- that moment of exhaustion, and that kind of comes up a few times in the 154 sonnets as well. It's just, what have I, what have I done? What path have I set myself on that now I can't seem to <laughs> get off? Now I have to see this through now and I have to kind of keep writing about this until I've got it all out of my system somehow and I don't even want to do it anymore mm. I'm stuck with it um and I quite like that I like that mood I enjoyed finding that those moments within Shakespeare's sonnets as well and mm-hmm. sort of exploring it but I think yeah I sort of feel like I can read them just for themselves again now so there were a couple of years where I was just working on this and just had this strange parasitic relationship to them and now, now I feel like I can actually just go back to them and yeah, yeah, yeah. Enjoy them. <laughs> One thing before before we finish, um, Richard, just to sort of, and this is a slightly sort of oblique question, but it's really just to satisfy my um, my curiosity. Is that it seems obviously the Tractatus is this, the the principal source text, but this the second epigraph um, in the mm. book is Russell Hoban's Pilgerman, or and you also reference this as sort of a um uh, as a, as a, an influence in the in your in your acknowledgement in your notes at the end. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I. I've read a few Hoban, obviously Ridley Walker and a couple of others, but I, I haven't read Pilgerman. And I'm just really intrigued mm. as to the the pertinence of this book to, uh, yeah, the uh, the the evolution of your work. It's I, I should say I, it's it's my favourite work of literature of the of the, the sort of second half of the twentieth century. Mm. It is the most extraordinary novel. It's it if you've read Ridley Walker, it's it's a it's a sequel to Ridley Walker, but it's a thematic sequel. So it's right. not picking up those characters; it's picking up the ideas. Mm. Uh, Hoban. Um, I think he 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 after he finished Ridley Walker he had a heart attack and and came reasonably close to dying and he said that Pilgrimage was the book where he made friends with death. Hmm. It's set in a in a medieval world. It's set in a, a sort as, as so much of his Hoban stuff is. It's set in almost a sort of magic realist world. It's a it's it's, it's a world of demons and ghosts and spirits and characters, but also very real human beings. And it it picks up in some ways what is a what is a very tired metaphor, which is life as pilgrimage, pilgrimage towards death. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's about a the title character Pilgerman, Pil- uh, Pilgrim in German, um, sets off to the Holy Land mm. um, and has all kinds of adventures and 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 experiences on the way. And the crucial fact is he doesn't reach Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. He's trying to, but he doesn't. And and he encounters this party of um, uh, children on the road. The, uh, there's a whole story of the Children's Crusade, which which is, is kind of horrifying in its own way. But he asks them where are you going? And they say, we're going to Jerusalem. And he says, well, what if you don't reach it? And he says, well, Jerusalem will be wherever we are when we come to the end. And that struck me as a very Wittgensteinian thought. Mm. You know, it, was, it, it, it is perfectly possible that he might have met his end in the in the trenches of the First World War. And I think so much mm. of his thought was was 
this is, this is where it gets so interesting to me because it's not just technical philosophy about the structure of logic and language. It's about how do we live? Mm-hmm. How do we face death? How do we deal with that prospect? How, how do you deal with it in a situation where you have deliberately put yourself mm-hmm. in the face of death and meaninglessness and tremendous um, suffering? I think Hoban's, Hoban's book is, a, is such a rich, deep exploration of that question. It's it's still I think the the, 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 the such a formative influence on me as a as a as a writer, but also uh, uh, as I say in a kind of spiritual sort of way, in a, in, a, in a, a text that really sort of gives you the space to grapple with these things for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's 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 yeah. I've rambled enough about this book. It is magnificent, and it's <laughs> well, it's, 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 a, it's a, moved to the top of my uh, to read uh-huh. pile. That mm-hmm. sounds, sounds extraordinary. Um, yeah. That is all we've got time for. Um, of course, uh, wherever we are when we come to the end and notes on the sonnets are both available from uh, Shakespeare and Company, from our online store as well, or uh, from your local neighbourhood independent bookstore, um, wherever that may be. Um, all that remains for me to say is, uh, Richard, Luke, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Fryman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading and thanks again for listening.